Turn with me, if you would, this morning to the conclusion of Psalm 35. So in your Bible, Psalm 35, verses 19 through 28. Now last week we read the first two-thirds of this psalm. It seems to be as if this psalm has something like three mini-psalms with the same theme repeated in the overall Psalm 35. And the repeated theme is to call on God in times of personal betrayal or oppression. Now if you know anything about King David who wrote this psalm, you know that he experienced such things with his king Saul when he was a young man and the betrayal he had when that king turned against him. He also experienced this with his own son Absalom who tried to take the kingdom from him. And maybe you've known things like this from family, friends, or perhaps the workplace or the neighborhood. You see, when those closest to us turn against us or betray us, they seem to hurt us the most, don't they? This is what David writes in these circumstances under this stress and this pressure, in part in this psalm at the end, verses 19 through 28. Follow along as I read. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. As we consider this psalm, a portion of it at least this morning, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, by your grace, may the words written here on these pages, written originally by your servant David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, work their work upon us to convict us, to challenge us, and to encourage us. Lord, we pray that whatever is spoken here from the pulpit, whatever is thought upon in our hearts and heard in our ears, might be pleasing in your sight, or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I remember maybe it's been a year or two ago, not too long ago, the deacon board was meeting in a room over here uh, down the hallway. And as we were meeting, we had a man burst into the room yelling at us, telling us, that the church was intentionally disturbing the neighborhood. He was particularly 
concerned about the fact that there were lawnmowers coming here in the evening after it was dusk. I have to say, if the church was disturbing the neighborhood, that would have been a sad and sinful accusation. It is not our job to disturb the neighborhood intentionally, unless, of course, it were just that we were speaking true things or seeking to glorify God and it happened to disturb someone who was offended by such things. But I began to think, how is it that we handle interruption of our peaceful citizenship, looking quietly to live our lives as citizens in the kingdom of God, when those who would come against us, perhaps from our own number, even our own families, from those who would come against us in the world around us that would tell us our beliefs and our practices were evil or wicked, those that might maliciously wound us, perhaps without cause or for no valid reason, what do we do? Well, David in the Psalms writes to us, or writes to the Lord, rather, for our benefit, what we should do in such times. We turn to God as judge and ask him to take care of the situation. In this particular section of this psalm, David, first of all, describes the injustice of his enemies. Then he calls upon the righteous judge And then in the end, when he understands that God will bring justice to the earth, he talks about the joy of the redeemed. But first of all, the injustice of enemies. Now, on the one hand, we don't know the circumstances of which David wrote this psalm. Did he write it as a young man, perhaps about King Saul? Did he write this as an older father, writing this about his son Absalom and all those would come against him? Or perhaps he was writing this about those that he thought were allies to his kingdom and yet betrayed him and turned against him. We don't really know, but we do know that David experienced many waves of personal betrayal and unjust persecution. And so that's the context of this psalm. Verse 19 picks up, repeating the themes of the earlier two sections, and seems to focus particularly on the petition to God to do something about it. But first of all, he describes the injustice of his enemies. He asks the Lord not to let those rejoice over him who are wrongfully his foes. The word wrongfully here is the word for deception or for lie. Or falsehood. These are enemies of lies or deception. In other words, he's asking God, those who would lie and deceive others, perhaps about David or about the circumstances, that God would not let them find joy in the experience. That sounds like a pretty mild imprecation or curse to call down upon those people, doesn't it? Then he describes them in this way. He says, there are also those who wink the eye. He says, let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. These are haters. You ever had somebody hate you? Perhaps they just had uh, an immediate dislike for you. I think that we have at times experienced that where someone just, just doesn't like us. 
and just hates us without cause. In this case, the context here is they're not someone who just comes and just hates you for no reason. They are those who have been in your circle, have been perhaps in your neighborhood, in your family, something else. And for whatever reason, they may have even thought they had a reason to hate David, but the reason really was non-existent. And he says, they're hating me without cause. He says, don't let them wink the eye. Now, you know, we wink the eye in jest and as we joke with our children or grandchildren or whatever, but the winking of the eye here is that person who would wink the eye to to one of his comrades in the hopes to maliciously wound or the fact that they are saying evil things about the person in their presence. He says, let them not be satisfied in doing that. So here are these people, they are liars, they are haters, and then verse 20, it seems to get even worse, they are peace pretenders upon the quiet. It says, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. In other words, there are those who are looking for an unsuspecting people. In in the book of Judges, there was a tribe that was looking for a land because they had not conquered the land as they had asked God to do. And so the scriptures describe this tribe as coming upon an unsuspecting people and killing them in order to get their land. Here is what's going on here. These are people who say, peace, peace, I'm a man of peace. But all along, they were just pretending They do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. So these are those who are liars and deceivers, and they say one thing, but out of their mouth, that one thing is not consistent with their actions or their plans. They're planning bad things against David or others, particularly those that are just going about their own business, and they're looking to take advantage. We live in a time and day where this is certainly the case, where there are those who are always trying to take advantage of the elderly and the vulnerable by trying to take advantage of them monetarily with vicious, wounding emails and texts and all those kinds of things. Some of you may have even received some of those in my name from a different account. And people are are trying to take advantage of unsuspecting people. Here it is, those who speak speak peace but devise words of deceit. But in the end, perhaps the most troubling thing is this last thing. They open wide their mouths against me and say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You see, they're false witnesses. There are those who will claim to others in public I know the bad that this person has done. But all along, it's been because they are false witnesses. Their eyes may have seen something, but in David's case, he's claiming that he did nothing wrong. It was without cause or in vain, as he's described previously in this chapter, and will describe again in verse 23. But here is a reminder that he is saying they are claiming they've got the goods on David. And here's what happens. 
Sometimes when the enemies are against us, they will find ways to devise that they will look to discredit us in the eyes of others. And they will claim false things about us. Perhaps in the workplace you've been described as a bigot. And perhaps you don't know why. Perhaps you've been described as someone who hates others because of your beliefs. And it may not be the case. Perhaps you've been described as someone who is out to get everybody else and only consumed by your own self-righteousness. Now maybe that's the case, I don't know. But maybe it's been a false accusation. But sometimes those who would be our enemies would do whatever was in their power to bring us down. I remember a recent accusation I had against myself, someone who claimed that I had ignored them in their time of trouble, refusing to answer their emails. The problem was I never got an email. When they claimed this, I went through all my email, my spam box, my my inbox, my sent box, my every box I can think of in the email, and I never found that they actually ever contacted me. Years ago, I had a similar accusation. I had a member of my church who sent me a bunch of emails claiming things against me, and I responded with one email, and they went and sent an email to all the elders in our church saying I was harassing them with email. Accusations. They hurt. They're troubling. What do we do? I did not send them another email, by the way. But intentional or unintentional, enemies, particularly new enemies, those who turn against us unsuspecting, or just because something has happened in the relationship, either intended or unintended, they can claim vicious attacks, sometimes even feeling justified or righteous for attacking us. What do we do? What does David do? Not that David is the key person in all of Christian history to look after. We know his faults. But he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words for our benefit. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. He's asking for the seeing God to act. And yes, I think this is an intentional play on the words. Notice the end of verse 21. Our eyes have seen it. Well, I don't know what they've seen. Perhaps they've gotten wrong in what they've seen. Either they're wrong because they're trying to be wrong, or they're wrong because they did not understand the situation. But the Lord is not wrong. David knows that God is omniscient. And he is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And he knows the truth about the matter. So if we want to call on somebody in times where we are viciously attacked, at least from our perspective, without reason, where do we turn? We turn to the one who knows the truth. And he says, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. It's a call for action to the seeing God, first of all, to speak to the situation. Now notice it doesn't say, that we should be the first ones to speak to the situation. Sometimes I do that, and that gets me into trouble. Because if in this case I think that it's an unjust cause, one of two things often happens. Either A, maybe they were right, 
And it wasn't the wrong thing for them to say. And then I get in trouble defending myself for a sin. Or on the other hand, if they weren't right and they really were trying to to discredit me in an unjust way, I can react in such a way that it makes the situation worse in my anger and in what I think might be righteous wrath. Instead, what does David do? He asks the Lord to speak to the situation. And then he says this, be not far from me. In other words, stay near. Now, of course, God's not going anywhere. David knows that, that God is everywhere. David knows that he's, uh, God has made these promises to him and so forth. But, but it's that, that feeling and that, that association of fellowship that we have with the Lord in times of difficulty. Sometimes it can feel as if God has abandoned us. And David at other points in scripture will write upon those lines that, Lord, it seems as if you're far away. And so David is saying, remind us you're here. Remind us in these tough and difficult experiences that you're here. And if it's not enough to call for action to the seeing God, he's calling action for action of the righteous judge. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. I prefer the translation judge instead of vindicate, and legal case or judgment in place of the word vindication. It's for this reason. David is calling for action upon the righteous judge, And he understands that he is not completely perfect, but in this case, he feels justified. And when he calls upon God, if you know anything about the heart of David, you know that he is repeatedly asking the Lord to look at his own heart first. This is the God of judgment. He says, first of all, awaken to the case. Awaken to the legal case or judgment. These are legal terms that he's using. And then he says to judge in verse 24, judge me, O Lord, my God. And when he says judge me, I think he's saying not only judge me, but judge this matter, judge this case. How? According to your righteousness. This is giving this situation to the Lord. He's not saying, Lord, I know I'm right. I know this guy is wrong. Go out and get him. He's saying, Lord, I think I'm right. This guy appears to be a liar and a deceiver and a hater for no reason whatsoever. Lord, you judge the matter for me. And I have to say, as a man who can have his pants all wrinkled up when it comes to somebody coming after me. Sometimes it's hard to let the Lord do the job. This is why the world sometimes thinks Christians are so mean-spirited. Is when they do attack, when they do things like this, what do we do? We often attack back. And we say, hey, If they attack this way, it's not fair not to use their methods. Because if we let the Lord handle the situation, it's like having our arm tied behind our back and fighting with one hand. And you know what? That's right. 
It doesn't seem fair. It's hard. I've been in those situations where I think somebody is attacking me or a family member or a friend viciously for no reason. And it doesn't seem fair because they're using all the tools of the enemy. And yet what are we called to do? Things like turn the other cheek? Come on, that's not the worldly way. Things like being slow to speak and quick to listen? You know how hard that is? Particularly for those of us who may be from the Midwest or the North. (laughs) Do you realize how difficult it is for us to let the Lord handle the situation? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't ever speak truth. It doesn't mean that we don't ever defend ourselves. But it does mean that our primary defense is God, the righteous judge, And then we call on him to turn tables on the enemy. Here's what he says. Let them not say in their hearts. Here's this word again. Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed them up. He's he's asking God to thwart their derision. You know, they're looking for the comeuppance. Perhaps for some reason they feel as if you have offended them. Or perhaps for some reason they feel as if they're the victim here or the oppressed. And whatever the situation may be, they may think that it would be joyful to get their way with you. And David is saying, please, Lord, you will not let them say in our hearts these things. They will not say we have swallowed him up. Verse 26, along the same theme, let them not be put... Let them be put to shame and disappointment altogether who rejoice at my calamity. There's a, there's a malicious sense of triumph to those who would be the enemies of God and his people. You know how it is. If you think you're at battle with somebody and you win, there's joy, right? I got him. I've prevailed. You know, I think of those times. Even when in my sinfulness, I've sought to be a victor in a, in a conversation or a debate or a situation. And there's some sense of triumph if I'm the winner. And he says, let that not be the case. Let them be put to shame and disappointed. And then he says this kind of an interesting phrase. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. In other words, those who would lord it over me. Look, you're down in the dirt. I've won. Those who would do that, let them be clothed with shame. What does it mean to be clothed with shame? It means that's the first thing everybody sees. Let them get what they were trying to give me. Shame and dishonor. And all those things. That sounds like it's kind of mean-spirited. But really, David is saying, I just want justice. You handle the situation. You decide who is right. And you let, you let your people go. You know, there is a problem with judgment when it comes to our own judgment. We tend to rush to judgment. You know, there's a story of the woman who is crying out to her husband because he left her car out of the garage. This is particularly true up north. It's cold outside. There's ice on the windows. It's cold inside. 
because now you have to turn the heat on and it takes a while for the car to warm up. It might even be that you're afraid the car might not start so well, whatever it might be, and so she begins to rail at her husband. And then the husband meekly says, well, you know, I had your car detailed, washed, and maintenanced, and it needed to sit out for a while in order for some of those things to work the right way. You see, what happens is so often we look at a situation and we make the judgment before we get all the information or because we don't know all the facts and we go out there and we seek vengeance upon our enemies and we seek to rail against them and we seek to have our way and triumph over them. But there is a righteous, omniscient judge who will give his foes what they truly deserve even when we cannot. And then there will be joy for the redeemed. You know, it's interesting in this psalm, we call it an imprecatory psalm, and we see all these things about David saying, okay, here's my dire situation, my enemies are terrible against me. And then he says, look at at the details of what they do. They hate me, they lie about me, they try to trap me, all those other things. Lord, do something about it and give them their comeuppance. But all three times in the psalm, in these sections, it ends with praise. You see, this is the thing that he's asking us to do. He's asking God to be the judge, and he's asking God to bring justice, but he's telling us our job is to praise God when he does it. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. He's asking for the joy of the redeemed to be evident in all the redeemed together. Again, this is the idea that he said earlier, that we all together, once we see God's acts on our behalf, we should tell others of what God has done. It was so heartwarming a couple of Sundays ago to see that part of the message was, that when we see the works of God in our life, we should not help but want to tell others those things. We had a visitor to the beach that Sunday, and they came back to the evening service in part just so they could give me their personal testimony about being called out of Hinduism by a God who has saved them from their sins and being able to minister despite the fact that they had stage 4 cancer to minister to the rest of their family who were still Hindus and in the darkness of that religion. And they wanted to tell me that day just what God had done for them. And I thought, how often do I just fail to tell others of the thing that I just told people to talk about? You see, once we see that God has done something for somebody else, then we all praise God together. We shout for joy and are glad and say, great is the Lord. All of us who take pleasure Notice what David says, in my righteousness. Now when you first say that, you think, okay, David, you want us to take joy that you're a good guy. You want us to take joy that you were right after all. You want us all to sing praises because in the end, you're declared more righteous than the enemies. Is that what you're saying, David? This is really all about you? For the believer, who is his righteousness? It's God. We don't have any righteousness apart from faith. 
Our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. So this righteousness is foreshadowing the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11 who is declared to be the judge of righteousness. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul writes to the Corinthians that Christ has become our righteousness. So he wants us to delight and sing praises to God because great is the Lord and we are wonderfully delighting in the righteousness of believers. Jesus Christ, we take pleasure in Christ, our righteousness. And then we unceasingly or continually, it doesn't really fit in your blank, I know. We unceasingly declare God is great. You ever know somebody that says all the time, God is good, God is great. You know, sometimes I get tired of that because, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. But we're to continually think that and dwell upon the greatness of God and what he's done. Why? Because we take pleasure in the peace of God's servants. Now, particularly in David's case, David is the anointed king of Israel, the anointed leader of God's people. Of course, the people should have taken great delight in the shalom or the peace or welfare of David because in his welfare is the welfare of the nation. But so too, we connected together in Christ, united by our faith, when one member of our body prospers and is in good welfare and peace, we delight and take joy in those things. And so again, what does the scripture say? Mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. In fact, David is saying here, in times of distress and times of oppression and persecution and all those things, what do we do? We ask God to take care of the situation. And then when he does, we give him praise. And in case it's not enough to see us all do it together, he also wants the redeemed individual to do it. He ends with this, verse 28. David writes, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. It's interesting, the word tell here, in most other places of scripture, it's either the word utter or the word meditate. In fact, it's the word that you might have uh, that's uh, reading something under your breath, pondering it. If you've ever seen the Orthodox Jew by the Wailing Wall who is rocking back and forth and muttering something under their breath, that's what this Hebrew word is. Someone who's always thinking about meditated upon, pondering the righteousness of God. You know, it took me a long time. It took me a long time to understand that our need for righteousness. You know, I always heard the term saved by grace, saved by faith, you know, all those other things, atonement, justification, sanctification, all those things. But it, it took me a while. I, maybe I'm slow. Maybe it was just my, my lack of understanding. It took me a while to understand our need for righteousness. You see, if we, if we don't have righteousness, we can't go to heaven. And the Bible tells us we have no righteousness. Not any. It's filthy before God. When we say, God, look at all the good things I've done, he looks at it and he says, well, that's just a heap of trash. And when it says here in this passage, in all of the situation, in dire times of need, seeing that God will give justice, we are pondering, meditating upon God's righteousness. 
because it is provided to us that we might experience eternal life. When we believe upon Jesus Christ, we give him our sins, and he gives us his righteousness. And then that is the one instrument by which, through faith, by grace, all those things in Christ alone, all the solas and all that kind of stuff, all your theology. But if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice without blemish, the very righteousness of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ... And if it wasn't for the fact that God has called us to faith in him and we trust in him and we didn't have that righteousness, we could not go to heaven. So what is it we're supposed to meditate upon? Jesus Christ, our righteousness. All the days, not of our glory, but of your glory, Lord. You see, for the Christian, sometimes the righteousness of the Lord, the works of Christ, and the wisdom of God are the furthest things from our mind. I think of someone who said not too long ago about being cut off in traffic and what the first thing that comes through their mind is. Or the person who feels as if somebody is out to get them, what do they want to do back? The first thing, but it shouldn't be so. We should be pondering the righteousness of God. You see, even in perilous situations, the righteousness of God should be on our mind. Because this righteous judge, yes, the righteous judge of Isaiah 11, yes, the righteous judge of Psalm 35, 23, this righteous judge filled with the spirit, the stump of Jesse has become for us righteousness and sanctification. We don't turn to personal vengeance. That's not what the imprecatory psalms are all about. They're not for personal vengeance. They're a reminder that we ask God to bring justice to the earth. And we long for the time when there will be no sin. There will be no those who take advantage of us. No those who hate us. None of those who will wink their eye because we're taking advantage of us. We long for that time. But we turn from personal vengeance to the Lord and judge who is our righteousness. What a wonderful place to come as we consider the Lord's table in just a few minutes. The Lord is my righteousness. If you have righteousness, that's the only way you have it is because the Lord has given it to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will forgive me of those times when I have tried to take these matters into my own hands. I pray, Lord, that you will forgive us of those times when it's furthest from our mind what your actions of justice will be or have been. Lord, we pray that in times of persecution, which are coming and will come and may be going on now, in those times of personal betrayal, which hurt so much and make us want to crawl in a corner or else stand up and fight back, Lord, we pray that you will be with us, near us, you are the God who sees, and you know what is true and right and good. Judge us, judge others, that your justice might come on the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name.